This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features important conversations on health policy issues, as well as advocacy efforts to advance access and quality to musculoskeletal health care. Be sure to tune in on the third Tuesday of every month for our regular program. I'm your host, Doug Lundy, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. All right, y'all, welcome to 2023, back to the AOS Advocacy Podcast. I'm very pleased on this episode to welcome two U.S. congressmen who are both within the Doctors Caucus, and there's a lot going on with Congress now. So we've got Congressman Larry Bouchon and Congressman Greg Murphy to talk with us about the interesting things that will affect the practice of medicine and surgery as we know it. Congressman Larry Bouchon is a Republican congressman from the 8th District of Indiana. He's your attorney guest on the podcast. The last he spoke with us was back in episode 19 that talked about reforming prior authorization in 2021. We're also pleased to have Congressman Greg Murphy with us, who's from North Carolina, the 3rd District of North Carolina. He's our first time guest on our show, but he's not new to our orthopedic surgeon members because he's been very involved with healthcare advocacy. And both of our guests this morning are actually both physicians. Dr. Bouchon, as we know, is a cardiothoracic surgeon, and Congressman Murphy is a urologist. So this is fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Good to be with you. Thank you for having us. All right, y'all. So let's talk about the Healthy Futures Task Force, Dr. Murphy, Congressman Murphy, that you've been talking about. You're the vice chair of the GOP Doctors Caucus. Can you tell us about this, why it was formed, and what y'all been doing with it? Doug, thanks, and thanks for letting me be on the program. In anticipation of a Republican majority, Leader McCarthy at the time put together a different task force so that we would actually be able to have conversations before we came into the majority such that we could hopefully enact legislation, we'd hit the ground running. And one of the different task forces that were set up was something called the Healthy Futures Task Force. We had several of our guys in the dog caucus, which is a very closely knit group of surgeons. We have a couple of dentists and pharmacists, but mostly physicians to come and talk about what goes on in medicine and what we can do in the Republican majority to help those who take care of patients. And some of these things had to do with pre-authorization. I know Dr. Rashawn has been a good advocate for some of these things. But what we've done is try to look at this whole thing. How do we get paid as doctors? And actually, Doug, I still practice. I saw patients yesterday. How can we help those who take care of patients in this country? We fought like dogs at the end of the year last year to try to stop a cut from happening from 8%. We were able to get it down to just 2%. But what the Healthy Futures Task Force is say, really, what are we doing best as doctors? How can we best get back to what the purpose of medicine is and then propose some legislation as the main actors in healthcare, not insurance companies, not hospital bureaucrats, but really the ones who take care of, of patients and doctors and how we can advocate for those. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Doctors' Caucus? Sure. It is a group, and again, as I was saying, it's a very close-knit group run by physicians. I'm one of the co-chairs along with Mike Burgess, a former OBGYN, and Brad Winstrup, a former podiatrist. Larry's a prominent member. He's a vice chair. And we meet weekly to talk about issues that concern medicine. And we oftentimes have a speaker that comes in from the CDC, the FDA, insurance companies, anywhere that you can think of to try to educate us on what's going on in the different fields 
of administrative medicine, what's going on in governmental medicine, what's going on in different fields at the NIH, those type of things, so that we best can get educated and produce legislation to help out medicine. One of our jobs as members in politics is actually to educate our colleagues about medicine, educate them about what's going on with doctors back home and how we can affect them, workforce shortages, liability problems, and those type of things that we as doctors face. Very good, sir. Thank you. Congressman Bouchon, so you're the chair of the subcommittee on doctor-patient relationships. Can you tell us a little bit more about this subcommittee and what the focus of the 118th Congress, what y'all are going to focus on there? Yeah, and the Healthy Futures Task Force that we put together last year, as Dr. Murphy outlined, doctor-patient relationship is one that you hear a lot about. And there's a couple of areas that are really affecting the ability of physicians to have that relationship. It's not only the payment system, but what we found out talking to physicians is the amount of time that providers now spend on paperwork, electronic paperwork, and not actually examining or talking to patients. The advent of electronic medical records, which I support, the premise was is it would decrease paperwork, the records would be more accurate, it would save the system money, all of which is found not to be true. The other thing that's affecting the doctor-patient relationship, I think, is the reimbursement issues at CMS and the decreasing reimbursement for years and years, which is making it difficult for some physicians to actually see Medicare or Medicaid patients in their practice. You're seeing more and more providers out there, particularly in rural areas that are struggling to get by. And the reality is that if physicians are struggling to get by financially, to run their practice and to keep their practice open and to keep access to all these patients, then it affects ultimately the, the relationship with the people that you're taking care of. It becomes a volume game. So these are the things we need to address. We're trying to do that. I think everybody's aware EMRs need to be more operable. There needs to be an easier way for the in input into the system. And we also know we need to revise how we're paying providers, physician providers, so that we're not facing these pay cuts every year. And th those are the things we're going to be working on. Both of y'all have worked in EMR. And I imagine Congressman Bouchon back in Indiana and Congressman Murphy back in North Carolina. When y'all meet with your constituents who are physicians, you're not starting from ground zero. You're way up in the thing because you speak the language, you saw them, and you've been in the surgeon's lounge and doing all these things. So it raises the conversation much further down the pike and you quickly get there. We've gotten to the point where we're not treating patients anymore. We're treating charts. And that'd be great for hospital administrators, but it's not good for patients. And they notice it. They absolutely notice it. And again, the doctor-patient relationship is impinged upon because of the time they need to spend doing that. And then, again, the reimbursement issue, the volume issue. You have to see so many patients because the reimbursement's gone so low that you functionally can't spend the time with patients that you would like to. And this impacts your ability to provide care. Yes, sir. As the listeners know, the Republicans have a narrow margin in the House, the Democrats have a narrow margin in the Senate, and there's a lot going on in the 118th Congress. We've got reforms to Medicare payments and post-COVID reforms. How do y'all feel these issues are going to transcend throughout the next two years, and what do you see happening? I think one of the roles of this Congress with the slim margins, honestly, on the Republican side in the House is going to be oversight. Certain things like MACRI, the Medicare and CHIP Reauthorization Act, which replaced the old SGR system of paying physicians, we need some oversight. There's a lot of things that aren't working out well. The MIPS system of how we assess quality, 
the alternative payment models haven't come to fruition. All the potential bonuses for quality, physicians can't meet those standards or resulting in payment cuts. So starting out of the gate, one of the things that we need to do, and we're going to do this hopefully on Energy and Commerce Committee, is oversight of the system. And we also need to do things like we were talking about with electronic medical records. I haven't really participated in a full committee hearing. Are they working? How come they're not interoperable? How come they cost so much? How come we have in some areas a near monopoly of one company supplying the service and the services isn't adequate? And how does that impinge on the ability for the doctor to take care of people? Honestly, not having some big, big legislative accomplishments because of makeup of the Congress, as you mentioned, at the White House and Senate. But I see us on the House side doing a lot of oversight and really exposing things that are happening in the system. That's kind of the way I see us getting out of the gate, I hope. Yeah. Doug, I'll just speak up to that for a second. If you look at our Medicare, there are only so many dollars in the system. And so at some point, I'm really, and I know Larry is the same way, we're sick and tired of all the cuts coming down on the backs of doctors, on the ones who actually take care of patients, the ones who are up at two o'clock in the morning fixing a pelvis or doing whatever. And if you look at what things are excesses in the system, you just pick one field. If you look at pharmaceuticals, there's so much we do with these pharmacy benefit managers, which most people and actually most doctors don't know much about, but how much is being sucked off by insurance companies. And a real big pet peeve with me is I've looked at a lot recently And I love our hospital administrators, but by God, the number of administrators has just grown exponentially over the last quarter century to the number of doctors. Some of that has to do with government regulation. CMS puts out 11,000 regulations per year, but a lot of it's not. And there are plenty of ripe places where we can start gaining money that needs to occur. There's so many unnecessary authorization burdens that are put on doctors and some of this other stuff that are pushed on practices that we have to get a hold on these things. And I don't know what the exact number is in orthopedics, how many are employed who've been bought out by private equity or employed now by hospitals. But in the number in urology, let's just say it's the rule that somebody comes out to be employed rather than go into private practice, which is absolutely wrong. It's the most efficient method of delivery of care in the country is in private practice. And some of that needs to stop. So there are plenty of other things where we need to trim the fat on, per se, of the Medicare dollars that doesn't need to be on the backs of physicians. What are y'all's thoughts on post-COVID reforms? There's a lot of folks that think that we should continue the permanent expansion of telemedicine. I think it was a good thing. I practice actually in a very rural area in North Carolina. When I see patients, I still can see them from two hours north, two hours south. And if you go out into the Patras area, five hours east. And so it is really a wonderful thing for an 80-year-old with prostate cancer to talk about their PSA over the telephone or a computer or whatever to be able to do that. That said, there have been abuses in this system, and we've seen such a spike now with the opioid epidemic where we have some bad actors that are prescribing drugs over the internet, per se, and some of that. I do think personally that telehealth needs to be a permanent fixture in an armamentarium, but we've got to put some guardrails. I do think patients do need to be seen and examined by doctors at regular intervals, just not every single time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think telehealth is something that people have been talking about for a long time, but we couldn't get a lot of traction in D.C. for the concerns that it would result in overutilization and a higher cost to the system. And I would argue that it has led to proper utilization. But I also agree with Dr. Murphy, there needs to be substantial oversight and make sure that we don't have fraud in the system 
But the reality is that the patients like it, the doctors like it. For example, if you can get someone seen by a physician over telehealth, and that person would never travel to see a physician, and you're able to properly manage their high blood pressure or their diabetes, imagine downstream the cost savings to the system for a person that may not otherwise have had access to a primary care doctor, because they're just not going to drive two, three hours to see somebody. But if they can do it in telehealth and be monitored more closely, and then maybe once a year make the trip, right? But, but two or three other times a year, be seen over telehealth, have their have their chronic medical illness more properly managed. That saves the system money. So we need to do these things, I think. It's been a game changer as far as mental health, and especially in my part of the state. It's an absolute game changer to keep regular visits on people. And that part, without a doubt, has done a great job. Hand in hand with that is the legislation regarding substance abuse disorders. Where do you all see Congress coming down with that? Doug, we, in this past year, funded a 1,000 new GME slots, and actually we just funded another 200 more in just different legislation. Of those 200, at least half of them went to psychiatrists and those individuals. So that's going to be a huge need, especially with substance abuse. In 2021, I think we saw 107,000 people die of overdoses. And now I bet you in 2022, we'll be at 120,000. We're going to have to deal with this. It's a big issue for surgeons and what we prescribe, and it's a big issue in medicine as a whole. Another thing let me say is we have expanded access to medication-assisted treatment for people who have chronic opioid problems. In my personal view, it got a little overexpanded, but we did need to address access to medication-assisted treatment over the last three or four years we've done that, and access to mental health services. The other thing is we need to permanently ban these fentanyl analogs. We've been having temporary bans on these that have to be renewed, but we need to permanently make them illegal, and we're trying to address that. And then we've put a lot of advocacy efforts into prior authorization and trying to reduce the burden and the hassle of prior authorization. We did a lot of work with y'all in the Medicare Advantage space. Where do you see the prior authorization efforts going within the next couple of years? I think we're going to make some headway. The administration has just put out some rules, or it's going to somewhat address the prior authorization situation in MA plans over at CMS. But we have more work to do. We have a inspector general's report from HHS that shows that private insurance companies involved in the Medicare Advantage space were denying about 13% of the claims that should have been paid for and are being paid for by traditional Medicare. So the MA plans is a good place to start. And also, we're finding out that the insurance companies, in many cases, double the profit off of MA plans that they are on regular employer-sponsored healthcare plans, and that the government may be overpaying, in many respects, these MA plans. So prior authorization is going to be key. Physicians hate this stuff. It adds to the, to the time of care. It sometimes inhibits prompt care, things that are approved 99.9% of the time, why do we have to wait a, even a day or two? There needs to be an electronic approval process, which is some of the stuff I had in my legislation of routine things that if they want to have a prior authorization, well and good, but they need to approve it almost immediately. And then we need reporting from insurance companies about what things they're denying and what things they're approving and what's the rate. I mean, if you're approving 99% of things, and it's actually costing the system money, and you're not really denying payments. Why are you doing it in the first place? It just delays medical care. So I see a lot happening in this Congress, honestly, in a bipartisan way on that issue. Two years ago, all the doctors and everybody were heroes. 
because we were literally on the front line, saving lives, literally risking life and limb for that matter. So many doctors, especially up in New York City, actually passed away from COVID. But what you're seeing now is the flip. All of a sudden, we're the bad guys again, cutting our pay and hurting our pre-authorization. I was sent something about United Healthcare when the Hospital Association president in North Carolina was lamenting that 30% of hospital admissions in some particular areas were denied. And that then you have insurance companies making record profit when physicians are just getting hammered. Sorry, there's something wrong with that picture. I agree with Larry. There's going to be a hell of a lot of oversight in this stuff because if bureaucracy and bureaucrats are the ones gaining the healthcare system, it's depriving care of patients and running doctors out of the business. There's data, recent articles to show the profit margin on MA plans in many cases, for some insurance companies, is twice what they make on regular employer-sponsored health insurance plans. Look, I'm a free market capitalist. I believe in profit. I believe in our system. But healthcare is a little different. It's different in one way. If my constituents can't get adequate access to quality, affordable healthcare, and they can't afford their insurance premiums or their deductibles, well, look, I'm all for profit also. But come on, we can't have a system where Insurance companies making record profits, as Dr. Murphy said. I just want to make clear, look, this is not necessarily an anti-insurance company thing that I'm promoting here. I just want to know the facts. I would argue that premiums and deductibles and stuff can come down once the American people understand where the money's going. That's what we need to do. Yes, sir. All right, gentlemen, let me wrap up with this. Uh, Congressman Bouchon, let's start with you, and then we'll flip to you, Congressman Murphy. Y'all have a whole group of orthopedic surgeons listening in. If you were going to advise that group as to how they should interact with Congress and things that they should do to be more effective, what would your ask be, sir? I think engagement's really critically important. Physicians, I think, are doing better in that respect. But I would say that in your individual practices, there needs to be one or two people who have an interest in this, and they need to take a substantial part of their time on advocacy, whether that's local, state, or federal. And I hear this from physician groups. In some way, the groups need to figure out how to compensate them for that lost productivity if you're going to have adequate advocacy, because that's a barrier, right? And a lot of people say, well, yeah, if I take 20% of my time on doing this, then that's 20% less productivity. And I get that. But I would argue that if there's a way it can be done, Everybody should, in their practice, have some people that are engaging. And it really makes a difference if people engage. And that's not only people like Dr. Murphy and I. You know, we get it. We're with you. Engage your local county council, your local state reps and senators, and then your representative in Washington, D.C., regardless of which side of the aisle they're on or whether they have a medical background or not. It really makes a difference. Yes, sir. Dr. Murphy? Yeah, Doug, it's funny. I didn't ever think I'd be in politics. And in fact, five, six years ago, I never raised my hand. Our state represented in the middle of his term in the Medical Society from North Carolina. Let's just say it made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I went unwillingly into politics. But I learned then how critically important it was that you and I in medicine or in surgery, who have dedicated our lives to this discipline, to our profession, actually become part of the conversation. Because if not, Individuals who have no idea what the hell we're doing are the ones making the decision. I have to beat on my younger partners to get involved with this. They don't want to contribute or they're too busy to do this, that, and the other stuff. 
It matters. This stuff matters. I get it. We're up at six o'clock, six thirty. We're at the hospital. We're operating all day. We come home. We're tired as hell. We don't have time for all this other stuff. We have to worry about EMRs. But you know what? This matters. It is our profession. It is our career. This is what we've devoted our lives to. And the attorneys, they're happy to jump in the fray and contribute and be politically active. It's time actually doctors stood up and took back healthcare as our field of what we should be controlling. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'd like to once again thank both of these surgeons, Congressman Larry Bouchon from the 8th District of Indiana and Congressman Greg Murphy from the 3rd District of North Carolina. Gentlemen, it's been a true honor and privilege talking with you all. And thank you so much for your insight and your advice for orthopedic surgeons. You're welcome. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal healthcare, please visit aaos.org forward slash the Bonebeat advocacy.